when I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, visit betterhelp.com slash stuff today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash stuff. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts season two of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here too, and this is an old school Stuff You Should Know episode. Yeah. Old school? Mm-hmm. It's just like a, a robust, yeah. jam-packed, yeah. Um, overlooked, unsung item episode, and those are often really good. Yeah. I bet we got a mechanical engineering suite in there somewhere. <laughs> I'll bet too, for <laughs> sure. We'll have to cobble it together someday and be like, look what we did, everybody. <laughs> but we want to talk about something else real quick first, right? Yeah, man. So um, we recently did a hangout for our friends Coed, um, the Cooperative for Education, who we've talked about plenty of times. They help kids stay in school in Guatemala and break the cycle of poverty by making sure they get an education, right? That's right. Everybody knows about Coed. Our first, our, um, our two-part Guatemala episode was when we went there with Coed. So we did a hangout with them for their Fall Fiesta fundraiser, and um, we found out that so far, since we went to Guatemala with them, Stuff You Should Know listeners have donated how much? I I think we are—and this is our good friend Anne at Mm Coed, who invited us initially, has has done the math and redone the math, things that we don't— the numbers. Things that we don't do. (laughs) <laughs> is redo the math several times. <laughs> right. And Anne says we are within a hundred grand of stuff you should know fans having donated one million bucks. That's amazing. That is so amazing. So we were like, okay, we're at like nine hundred thousand dollars. I feel like we should, you know, hit one million. It's just such a nice round number. Nice and round. And and Coed will do so many good things with that extra hundred grand. So you and I both realized that 100 grand is a tremendous amount of money. So we did some number crunching ourselves and we figured <laughs> out that if we divided it up among stuff you should know listeners, if everyone chipped in like a, a nominal amount, we could reach that goal, right? Yeah. So you did the math. I'm going to let you stand behind it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was hoping you'd stand in front of the, the first one's squad. easy. So if 20,000 stuff you should know listeners, and we're told there are that many out there, um, each chip in five dollars, we'll reach that goal. Mm-hmm. No problem. Yeah. Uh, what ten thousand stuff you know listeners chip in ten thousand dollars or <laughs> ten dollars <laughs> each. That's right. And then um, I believe if eight thousand six hundred ninety-five <laughs> listeners contribute eleven dollars and fifty cents, we will hit that goal as well. Right. So you get the point. Uh, it doesn't take much when you have a lot of great people banded together. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the holiday time. I know that, you know, that's a, a money crunching time. But if you could throw $5 their way and we could all, like, work our way towards that million before the end of the year, that would really be a big, big, huge deal. It would be really cool. And believe us, we'll both be chipping in as well. Absolutely. So it's not like we're asking you to do something we would no. do. And we're going to make Jerry chip in, too. Yeah, that's right. And I'm going to chip in more than $5. Oh, yeah? I'm going to chip in that eleven fifty. <laughs> no, we're going to do that thing where uh, when you split the tab at a restaurant, we try and see what the other person tipped so <laughs> right. one of us doesn't look cheap. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so they actually set up a, um, a specific URL for us, right? That's right. Uh, it is cooperative for, F-O-R, education.org slash S-Y-S-K. Very, very yep. easy. 
Yep. And you just go on. The donation process is quick and painless, and you will be helping kids break the cycle of poverty in Guatemala and feel really good about things. That's right. I want to make sure that our contributions count as Stuff You Should Know Army. Well, yeah, I would I would hope Ian would make sure of that. I mean, we're part of the Army still, even though we're, you know, the, what are we, commandants or something? I guess. <laughs> That's a pretty European Ad- way to put it. Sure. <laughs> I always pictured ourselves on a ship. We're admirals. I like colonel. You could be admiral. I'm going to be colonel. Well, if you're a colonel, I'm just going to be a private. No. Come on. (laughs) Anyway, and count our donations if you can do that because we're part of the Army. And I think anyone, including us, who goes to cooperativeforeducation.org slash SYSK, their donation will automatically be counted toward the total. For sure. Okay, so go forth, everybody. Uh, it's Thanksgiving time. The holiday season is starting to kick off. Good cheer and good vibes and glad tidings are starting to fill all of our hearts, and hopefully that will culminate in us each donating five bucks. That's right. Okay. Shall we talk typewriters? Yeah, let's. let's. I think that went really well, Chuck. I think it went well, too. <laughs> so a big shout-out to our buddy Dave Roos, who I bet will also contribute. Because he's also a listener as well as a writer for us. Well, he listens to the ones that he helps us write. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I suspect the same thing. So um, he helped us out with this one on typewriters. And um, it's one of those things, like I said, it was. it's kind of one of those overlooked and unsung items that yeah. really had like a lot of effect on the world. So much so that I feel like scholarship into the impact that, that typewriters had on society kind of ends with, um, you know, ushering feminism into the workplace, or at, at the very least, women into the workplace. We'll talk a lot about that later, but I think it had even more effects, Chuck, like if you stop and think about it. Like, you know, would we have the computer today if we hadn't invented the typewriter in the middle of the 19th century? Or if we did, what would it look like if we hadn't had the typewriter first? Um, you know, did because it allowed for a lot more smoothness in the business office, it allowed for like um, systematic management, I think. So is it responsible for the creation of the paperwork we're all drowning in at all times? I have questions about this and no one's answered them yet. <laughs> so I'm just going to throw those questions out and just let them kind of gel over the whole episode. Would we have uh, all the great works of literature that we have since the invention of the typewriter, people were certainly writing before the typewriter. Mm-hmm. As long as there was a, a feather and some ink around, sure, uh, they would use the old quill. But the typewriter certainly um, sort of opened things up, uh, not the very least things like self-publishing and and getting your own creative ideas out to the world in an easier yeah. fashion. So I yeah. think creatively, the typewriter was a game changer. That's an excellent point. Too. Mark, Mark Twain, right? He was the – and this is a great – this may be the fact of the show – Mm-hmm. His book in 1882, Life on the Mississippi, was the very first typewritten manuscript ever submitted, as far as anyone knows. Yeah. Uh, and apparently he hand-wrote it and then had his assistant or secretary transcribe it onto into a typewriter. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how things went for a while. Typewriter right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But um, the one thing about typewriting, too, I think some of those early writers were like, well, wait a minute. Does that mean we're just supposed to dictate our books? And I don't know how I feel about that. Right. And then they finally figured out, like, oh, we can actually do the typing ourselves. And I think that's when it really kind of opened up for literature, like you were saying. Right. But that also went the other way later with uh, memoirs with people like Keith, Keith Richards would say, you mean I can just say things out loud and it'll be a book? <laughs> right. right. Those 17 pages that are just the letter L. Uh, 1,700 more like. His, his uh, autobiography <laughs> is very long and great. Okay. So um, one of the other things about the typewriter, too, is it wasn't around for that long. For as much of an effect as it did have on society, it was invented in 1868. The first thing that we recognize as a modern typewriter. And then by the 80s, it was certainly on its way out. Yeah. And it died really quickly. Because, 120 years or yeah, so? Yeah. And the techno- because the technology that we invented took off really quickly. But again, it was all based on the typewriter. There were improvements to the typewriter that eventually led to the PC. That's right. Uh, and I have a, a, a deep, deep love of mechanical machines. Mm-hmm. And I have an old typewriter, and I've had it since college. Mm-hmm. I think my mom got it for me for Christmas one year, got me an old royal antique oh, nice. typewriter just to display. 
Yeah. And I have moved that thing. Uh, I'll post a uh, a picture of it. It's still on my shelf in my office upstairs. I've moved it everywhere for the past, you know, 35 years. <laughs> and I still will, you know, throw a piece of paper in that thing every now and then and type on it and realize that the ribbon is dry. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, all work and no play, make Jack a dull boy. <laughs> but we are the generation, and, and me even a little bit more than you because I'm a few years older, of – uh, and, you know, we talk about Gen X being the greatest generation because we saw such transitions yeah. in technology. But the typewriter was certainly one of them. Like, I typed in my typing class in high school mm-hmm. on a on an IBM Selectric, which we'll talk about, one of the greatest machines ever invented. Easily. And then just a few years later, when I jumped into college, I had one of those overly expensive word processors. Yeah, we had one too, and I was thinking, I was trying to remember what brand it was, and I was I like, couldn't was remember it a, either. I thought it was a brother, and then I stopped and thought a little more about it. I'm like, I'm sure it was a Sears and Roebuck um, word <laughs> processor, not a brother. I know mine was used. I'll tell you that. Yeah, but those things were really amazing, especially if you could take the time to stop and figure out how to use it. Right. Because that was one of the great things about typewriters is people have been using them for so long that when you first learned how to do it, there were so many people out there who could tell you how to do it, and it was easy to pick up. Word processors made it difficult, but I posit that they were a necessary transition from typewriters to PCs. It got people thinking in a more digital way, you know? Yeah, yeah, just to see it on that tiny little screen <laughs> I felt like it was like two inches by three inches maybe yeah uh, that was a game changer yeah we'll talk more about that later but let's, let's just do like a quick overview of how to use a typewriter for the chillins yeah like the, the, the parts and pieces parts yeah alright so a manual typewriter and that's what we're going to call anything that isn't electric or electronic uh, anything pre those days uh, what you do kids is you get a piece of white paper Mm-hmm. And you feed it into this machine, this mechanical machine, by rotating a rubber cylinder that's called a, a platen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you roll it till it's lined up to where you basically want to start typing. And even that, when you first start typing, is a little bit weird. Like you might start typing too high and you realize you got to roll it up a little bit more right. to get that, uh, I mean, what do you call that? The Not the, the border. margin? Yeah, the margin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the border. I call it a border. Or the header. Yeah, the header, which is like whatever you want to set it, an inch, inch and a half. So you line up that paper where you want to start typing, and then you start typing by pressing down on a key. Mm-hmm. And Dave even says press hard in parentheses because you got to give it a little bit of a, a, a strike, much more than you do even though you have abused laptops in your time. <laughs> I always said you sound like Thelonious Monk over there on the, ty- on the computer, but I can't imagine hearing you on a typewriter. <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah, the reason you have to press hard, though, because we're talking about manual typewriters. There's no electricity involved. You can take it anywhere. It sounds like that's what your Royal is, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, when you're pressing on that key, it's actually causing that lever to shoot up. And attached to the end of the lever is what's called a type bar. And that is basically a little mini type bar <laughs> like you'd find in a printing press. <laughs> yeah. And typically, um, I think the top is uh, lowercase and the bottom is uppercase. And when that type bar hits the paper, depending on whether you're on lower or higher case, um, it, it smacks the paper and it goes through the ink ribbon, which shoots up all of a sudden out of nowhere like a whack-a-mole and gets in between the type bar and the paper. So the type bar actually strikes and leaves an impression through the ink ribbon onto the paper, and that's how you type a nice inky letter. That's right. And I know we sound like we're being, uh, like we're coddling, but I'm I'm really not when I say this. If you've never used one, you've never really looked at one much, Mm -hmm. um, it's like a little stamp on the end of a a metal lever, and it just just stamps the letters on one at a time. Right. So, I mean, that's pretty much it. The only thing is, and this is like a really ingenious part of the typewriter from way back, when you type uh, a letter... The, the carriage, which is the whole assembly that holds the platen, um, it, it moves to the left, one space, so that you are now about to type your next letter to the right of the last letter that you just typed. That's right. 
so that you're not typing your entire manuscript in one single space. It seems really easy to overlook, but it's a really important part. And then eventually you get to an end, uh, the end of the the carriage. Mm -hmm. It reaches all the way to the left. It almost seems so wildly out of proportion that the typewriter will surely tip over at any second. And then a little (laughs) bell goes ding, and you hit a lever, and the thing slides back to the right fast as Bob's your uncle, and then you start typing the next line because it raised up one space or two spaces, depending on whether you're typing single space or double space. That's right. And you think, is there a small troll in there that is hitting a bell? <laughs> no, that's it's all mechanical. It's wonderful. That carriage return, and you have your margin set so it knows when to ding. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's just a wonder of mechanical engineering. I love a typewriter. There's a lot of, like, if you only just sort of see the outside and you're looking at the type bar, that in it of itself is kind of cool. But when you open that thing up and really look at the mechanics behind it, it's just awesome. I love typewriters. Yeah, it is very cool. And also one of the other things um, that's neat about it, when you look over the typewriter, you see that all of the type bars, all of the um, the alphabet and the numbers are looking back up at you yes, right. in like a semicircle. <laughs> uh-huh. And so they just shoot up from their spot. Hey, 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 depending on what um, what letter you're typing. But they always hit that same part, which is exactly where the carriage wants them to hit on the plaid. So that's a typewriter. And I say, Chuck, um, that we take a break and then come back and talk about some of the history behind it. Let's do it. Right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Hey, everybody, if you're building a deck at work and you want to supercharge it, check out Canva presentations. Work docs have been the same for too long, but Canva docs are different. They're visual. They grab readers' attention with images, charts, tables, and videos playable right in the doc. Plus, docs don't have to be just words on a page. You can make your docs pop with Canva docs. That's right. And Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, HR, ops, marketing, and more, Canva presentations can be the solution for you. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Canva presentations might be the most visually impressive presentations you'll ever use. Start with a stunning template, use it as a springboard for your design, adding images, graphics, charts, data visualizations, all from a massive media library. It's super easy to wow any audience with Canva presentations. So start designing today at canva.com, designed for work. That's C-A-N-V-A dot com. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. That's right. It's even in the name. Use code STUFF20 at checkout to receive $20 off your first month. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Yep. Again, use promo code STUFF20 and you'll receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Save on wireless with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. And you don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. (laughs) 
Hey everybody, it's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website, whether it's an online course or custom merch. Squarespace has you covered. That's right. Courses is a great program. You can start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. That's right. With Fluid Engine, which is a next generation website design system, by the way, it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. And don't forget the commerce side, because after that, you can charge a one time fee or you can even sell a subscription. Yeah. So turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. So uh, before we go on, I do want to say that as a rite of passage for any child, mm-hmm. uh, I, when, when my daughter was a little bit younger, she probably still does it for all I know, I would go into my office and see my typewriter type bars all tangled together because <laughs> a rite of passage for any kid when they see a manual typewriter is just to smash all those keys right. at the same time and they get into a little tangled mess, which yeah. we'll get to. That has a lot to do with uh, the eventual keyboard design. Uh, but yeah, just want to throw that out there. Yeah, that was a real problem. They turn into like a little rat's nest, right? Little rat's nest. So From the um, fingers of the fingies of a little rat. Yes, and that was a problem that was faced by one Christopher Latham Shoals, who is widely considered to be the inventor of the typewriter. Although, as we'll see, he didn't work uh, completely alone. But he and a pal of his um, created the, the patent for the typewriter in 1868. They were the first people to get a patent for the first typewriter. But at least 50 people gave it a try before Scholes uh, perfected it. Or I shouldn't say perfected it. Came the closest to perfecting it the first time. How about that? Yeah, because, you know, Day points out, they, you know, the printing press was invented in, what, the 14-something, 15th century. Mm-hmm. And it took a couple of hundred years. But then for about 100 years, people tried to figure out a typewriter of some sort. Right. Uh, the first sort of working typewriter uh, may have been this guy named Giuseppe Pellegrino Turi. Oh, nice. mm-hmm. uh, he was obviously an Italian guy. He was an inventor. And in 1808, he made a device for uh, either his friend or his girlfriend, the Countess Carolina Fantoni da Fivisano. Wow, that's quite a very mouthful. Nice. It is. Uh, it's and a this, beautiful name. It's very beautiful name. And this is a cool story because she had lost her sight. Mm-hmm. So the invention was so, you know, typing is something that you can do without sight. In fact, that's the whole goal is to right. learn to type without looking. Right. Um, so uh, there's an alternate story that her brother, Augustino, actually invented it for her, and Turi improved it. But <clears throat> the upshot of it is whoever created this machine, uh, it, it doesn't exist any longer. It didn't survive. But some of her typed um, letters did from 1808 all the way back in 1808. Undisputed first typed letters were from Italy back then. That's right. Uh, and then there are another couple of guys who tried their hand at it. Uh, just shout them out because we always like to shout out Detroiters. Yeah. Uh, a guy named William Austin Burt in the early 1800s invented a typographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, clunky, didn't work very well. No. And then another pre-typewriter was built. Uh, it was called the Hansen Writing Ball. Mm-hmm. And this one is kind of interesting in that yeah. it used electromagnetic uh, energy. It used an electromagnetic battery to actually power this thing. So it didn't work very well, but it was way ahead of its time. Actually, I saw that it did work really well. Um, that Well, you, for manufacturing, though, I think. Okay, right, true. And the the arrangement of the keys, it was like a pin cushion. So you held both hands together like you were an alien, for Pete's sake, <laughs> typing. But the thing would work really well. It would respond as fast as you typed. Um, in part because of those electromagnets. And he also spread the vowels to the left and the consonants to the right, which made typing even faster. And I saw it also automatically advanced the paper, too. So it didn't really resemble our earliest typewriters yeah. or our typewriters, but it, it was its own kind of neat thing that just didn't take off. Everybody's like, what's this pincushion thing? This is not right. It's the kind of fun thing you see in a museum, and you marvel at how advanced it was for the time. Sure, Definitely. Uh, if you want to get to real typewriters, though, we got to go back 
to Christopher Latham Scholes, who you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, a Milwaukeean, right? Yeah. And he got he was a journalist. He was a politician sometimes. A, uh, I almost said a Superman, a newspaper man. <laughs> Superman was a newspaper man. Yeah, hey man, that was a heck of a connection. Uh, and he was a Superman. I'll I'll say it. Uh, and he <laughs> had a side gig as an inventor, and he got together. He was smart enough to collaborate with people, and got together in 1866 with a couple of colleagues named Carlos Glidden and mm-hmm. Samuel Willard uh, Sewell. Would you say? Or soul. I'm going with soul. You're going with soul? All right. Mm-hmm. Soul with an E. Yeah. And they uh, went to work and designed um, uh, a typewriter at uh, Klein Stuber's machine shop in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And then finally in 1868, were able to apply for their uh, – and this is kind of fun. I always love the early sort of um, when things are split up into two words, capital mm-hmm. T type <laughs> dash capital W writer. Right. A literal typewriter. And it had a little – it's it's fun to look up. Look look this thing up. It had little piano keys mm-hmm. as the keyboard, which and makes I, sense because it has a similar mechanical function. Right, and apparently the ebony keys had one function. The ivory keys had another function. But if you look at it, there's only like four or five keys of each, and I cannot make heads or tails yeah. of how the thing worked. And apparently, no one else can because I've never found an uh, an explanation. Of actually how it worked. Everybody's just like, look at that thing. It looks like a piano. Moving on. Well, one Um, thing I knew is that they lived together in perfect harmony. (laughs) That's right. The other thing I found out about that, too, is in their prototype, all it could type was W. But apparently it typed W really, really well, enough that they applied for the patent and they got it. They also did something else that was innovative that would come in. um, It was kind of one of those things that laid the groundwork for all typewriters to come. They had two spools that held an ink ribbon on top. And we talked about how the ink ribbon jumps up and gets in between the type bar and the paper to leave the the inked letter. Well, these guys invented it basically right out of the gate. Yeah, because you got to have a spool. you got to move that ribbon along. Mm -hmm. Or you're just typing on the same section of ribbon over and over. And that's no good. Sure. No. doesn't (laughs) work. Uh, In 1872, they sold... Uh, their shares in this invention to a guy, an oil guy named James Dinsmore, who will factor in uh, in a pretty big way in a minute. And but Scholz wasn't done. He was like, you know what? We sold this thing, but I'm going to keep working. And later that same year, like that's how like dedicated he was to figuring this thing out. Yeah, he teamed with another inventor named Matthias Schwalbach, and and made an improved typewriter within the same year that he sold the patent, which is pretty. I don't know if that's shifty or just super smart. I saw that it was Glidden and Soul that sold their shares and that um, Scholes may have kept his. So oh, he might okay. have been well, that fully, makes sense. Yeah, fully not shady. Or invested. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Schwalbach and Scholes, the thing that they came up with, there's no better way to describe what it looked like than Dave put it, which is a medieval pasta maker. Yeah. <laughs> It's really weird and ungainly and yeah. like uh, just uh, disproportionate, like real top heavy. Um, but it it worked pretty well. But again, it was just one of those things that that um, that Scholes was. He just kept improving and improving and improving. And then you said Densmore really kind of comes in in a big way in a minute. And here he comes because after the Civil War, the Remington Company, which had built uh, or manufactured tons of guns. Uh, for the Civil War, found that their gun market had suddenly dried up, and they were looking for new markets to get into. And Densmore said, I got one for you. That's right. Uh, they also made sewing machines, which will become evident here in a minute. But uh, in 1873, Densmore pitched them mm-hmm. and said, this typewriter thing is pretty awesome. And Remington, like you said, was looking to make something, literally. And they said, give me a 1000 And uh, I guess that was just the initial order, and it really took off. Um, they manufactured them where they manufactured their sewing machines in upstate New York. Right. And the what it was known as was the Shoals and Glidden typewriter. That's mm-hmm. how it was branded. And it's it's you can look this one up too. It's a very pretty sort of Victorian era uh, looking machine. It's actually decorative. They have flowers painted on the case. It's, it's cool. It looks like an old-timey sewing machine because apparently Remington's design team were one-trick ponies. Um, it even had like a foot pedal too for I the return. Yeah. Like when when the thing dinged, you didn't press the lever with your hand. You hit it with the foot pedal, and it went. The carriage returned back to the right. I like that. Um, yeah. Um, so 
they, they were like, okay, we're getting closer. Um, this is starting to kind of come around. And I think that Scholes and Glidden typewriter was the first one that Mark Twain had, if I'm not mistaken. I um, think so, yeah. But Scholes invented something else. Like, this guy is just the inventor that keeps on giving as far as typewriters are concerned. In 1878, he invented the shift key. And if you were like me and never realized why the shift key was called the shift key, then prepare to be amazed because (laughs) there's an actual reason for it. That's right. When you hit the shift, well, we should say that that initial Scholes and Glidden was all caps. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That was a problem. Everyone, you know, uh, I think actually Twain handed in his – manuscript on the Remington 2, which we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. But uh, if he had handed in the Scholes and Glidden, they would have said, why is this guy shouting at everyone all the time? <laughs> it's like right. life on the Mississippi he should be a little more laid back. Life on the Mississippi! <laughs> uh, so the shift key is something that literally shifted everything up. The whole carriage shifted up. And like you said uh, earlier, there's the the lowercase letter and the uppercase letter just right on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And that's all it took. You just It was a mechanical solution again. That lifted it up where the the appropriate uh, case of letter would mm-hmm. hit that ribbon. And that's why they call it the shift. And they still call it that, which is hysterical. It is because you're not shifting anything on a computer, but you did physically shift the carriage up. And then whatever letter was on top, I think the lowercase, which is still the case. If you press shift, it goes to uppercase, right? Yes. <laughs> well, that's that finds its source back in the 1870s, and that up the lowercase letter at the top of the type bar would be too high up to hit the the letter or the paper. Now, I just think that's amazing. Yeah, it's interesting because we do have a caps lock on a computer keyboard. I wonder why they did didn't change shift to caps. They well, used to call it shift lock. That's true, and also it does more. I forgot that it also does more beyond capitalizing. Does percentage and ampersand and all the number. Oh, okay. Uh, secondary functions. But so does shift. So caps lock makes even less sense. It should be shift lock. It should be shift lock. Yeah, somebody really screwed up along the way. No, wait, does cap, caps lock doesn't do that for the numbers, does it? I'm going to find out right now. <laughs> I believe it does, man. I'm pretty sure. I'm, I've, I've literally never tried that. I know. I, I don't think I have either. Let's All right, try. this is good. I'm demonstrating now. We're caps live. lock engaged. I'm going to type a three, which is a pound sign. No, it was a three. So, okay. cap lock works. <laughs> <laughs> we just did a live demo on air. I love that there's probably about half the people that were on, on the edge of their seat, and half the people are going, these guys have had the show for how long? <laughs> and <laughs> right. they're this dumb? <laughs> yeah. Gen All X right. is the best generation, huh? Uh, let's talk about QWERTY, our old friend QWERTY. Is that how you say it? Or do you say QWERTY? Mm-hmm. QWERTY, QWERTY. I, I think I say both, actually, because they both sound right. Now Somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Well, QWERTY, as everyone knows, is the style of keyboard, the arrangement of the letters on most Western typewriters that you'll see. Uh, as you'll see and maybe surprise, there are a lot of other different arrangements. But the QWERTY is the one that's stuck, and it is named after those first six letters on the top row of the typewriter. Yep, starting from the left, right? That's right. And I should have said English language. Well, not just English language, any Latin alphabet. So the ABCs, those are considered the Latin alphabet. Yeah. And so, like, if you go to, um, I don't know, Italy, uh, sure. you you can find QWERTY keyboards there too, right? Um, but the the there's a legend, I guess, with QWERTY. A lot of people say that, um, and it was Scholes who came up with the QWERTY keyboard, yet another amazing milestone that this man delivered to humanity. Um Okay, not an amazing milestone, but something that's still around today and is mildly interesting to talk about, at least. (laughs) Boy, really (laughs) cut him out, cut his knees out on that one, didn't you? (laughs) So, um, he, so a lot, there's a legend that he created the QWERTY keyboard because people were typing too fast. So, he, um, because he, he originally had it alphabetized. And that's true. He originally had the um, the the keyboard alphabetized. I think starting from the top left. Maybe I'm not sure, but apparently some uh, I think some researchers at Kyoto University in Japan did some analysis on this legend and were like, we think this is a myth. Apparently, Scholz is the kind of guy who would have been like, oh, people are typing too fast and my typewriter's jamming up. He wouldn't have tried to slow the typist down. He would have tried to have improved the typewriter. Right. 
But more to the point, they think actually it was Morse code operators whose input led to the QWERTY keyboard from Scholes. Because if, you, if you're transcribing my, Morse code, mm-hmm. QWERTY layout makes a lot of sense. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Do you know how? I don't. I'm just taking it on faith from the <laughs> okay. Kyoto researchers that that's the case. Yeah, well, again, he, he made an improvement, and he found that they were more likely to jam uh, with the more frequently used letters next to each other. So he mm-hmm. did uh, he did some thinking about it and decided that if I, come up, if I space these things out, the most common two-letter combinations, mm-hmm. then in theory we should be getting fewer jams. Sure, it'll happen every now and then, but mm-hmm. at least we can reduce the number of jams. And that was it. But that's not the only alternative, right? What, the other kind of keyboard? Well, no, there, there are quite a few other alternatives to the QWERTY. Right, the, the layout of it, right? Yeah. Okay. And by the way, what you just said was the legend from what I understand. Well, I thought he, he did not look and uh, arrange them by two-letter combinations. I, I don't. I I don't know. Again, I think it's because of the, at least, okay, the Kyoto people say it's because of the Morse code operators. Other people say, no, it absolutely is true that it was, it was the, um, the, he was trying to fix the jam. We just don't know. It's just interesting to debate. See, what I saw was that he was trying to fix the jams, but he wasn't so concerned about fast typing. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good point. And it was lost on me until you just said that. So, so. He was making it so letters that were next to each other that you'd frequently use wouldn't be used at the same time, and so it would cut down on the chance of them jamming? That's what I heard, but also, you know, maybe it was both. Okay. I think we should just spend the rest of this episode talking about the QWERTY <laughs> legend. I think we should move on from the QWERTY to the diatensor. Yeah, you set me up. So there's other keyboard layouts. I hadn't heard of diatensor, have you? No. So a guy named George Canfield Blixendurfer, which is a wonderful name, name. (laughs) he did some analysis all the way back in 1892 and figured out that there was an optimal way to design a keyboard. Um, And by by analyzing the English language, he found that if he put D-H-I-A-T-E-N-S-O and R in, I believe, the middle row— he the the I think eighty five percent of all English words would use those letters, and the reason why the middle row is important is because well, they were the middle, bottom row actually. Were they? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in other keyboard layouts to come, they usually put the most important letters in the middle row because that's considered the home row or the home um, position, right? Yeah. Okay, but so he said to heck with that. I'm not including that. But regardless, whatever row the D H I N T-E-D-H-I-A-T-E-N-S-O-R was in, bottom row, I guess. Mm. 85% of all English words would use those letters. So you would be able to type most words without even leaving the bottom row, which would let you type way fast. Yeah, I guess he just had a different idea of where home was because he went bottom up. Um, the the diatensor was on the bottom. Then the middle row had uh, 13% of all English words use those letters, and then at the top row, only 2%. So right. he really uh, he really went all in on the bottom end. <laughs> he did. <laughs> and then there's another one called the Dvorak Simplified Keyboard, and apparently this one's still popular. It was uh, created in the 30s. Yeah, I think this one, if I'm not mistaken, and I didn't do much digging, but I think the Dvorak is the one that really has a lot of very passionate proponents still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and and like you can get Dvorak keyboards, right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's an, a setting or an app you can download for oh. your phone or your computer. Oh, and that's interesting. I'm, I don't know if you could order it. Maybe from like Alienware, I could see them creating those. I don't even know what that is. It's like a gamer system computer. Oh, okay. uh, but the Dvorak is the one that it really has like a lot of people still out there saying QWERTY. Uh, stinks, and the Dvorak is what we should have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. August Dvorak was the inventor, like you said, and I think it was 1936 specifically, but um, also did a lot of studying of the English language. And also, apparently, this had a lot to do with um, fatigue for your fingies. Right. Because he put, I think, the the consonants, the most used consonants on the right side, and the vowels on the left. And 
you were able to type many more words staying in that home position. And again, right. I think home position is typically the middle of the middle row with the ac- the absolute middle two keys not touched, but the other the other eight keys are touched by your fingers and then both of your thumbs are on the space bar. That's right. Now like I, I think, Chuck, we should explain this. Like, uh-huh. people are just left to pick up typing on their own today because it's so ubiquitous. Yeah. There were classes in high school. You referenced earlier taking one. I got out of it. I really didn't want to <laughs> take typing. But they would teach you typing. They would take an hour out of the day yeah. to, to go to typing class, and you would learn to type, right? Well, yeah, this is where I was going to ask you, like, what your typing method is. Like, I took the typing class. It was... Typing shorthand, and it was mm-hmm. one of those classes where you did, like, three things in a quarter. Yeah. It was typing shorthand or speed writing, which I've talked about in another episode. Right. I guess the shorthand episode. Yeah. And uh, I think the third one was, like, those classes that told you, like, how to keep a bank account and write checks and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> which is funny now. Like, you could teach that in a day. Right. And yet we had, like, a third of a quarter. Uh, but I never learned to type properly, even though I took that typing class. I am a uh, almost a, a no-look typist now, mm-hmm. but it's just from repetition. It is right. I, I don't type correctly. I think I type with my my pointer and my middle fingers generally only. Sometimes I'll use the ring finger a little. Never use the pinky. I never use – are you even supposed to use your thumb? I don't remember. I think for space. For spacing. For space bar. I don't use the thumb at all. So I'm a hunter and a pecker who just got really fast and memorized the keyboard. So you still generally hunt and peck, but really fast? Well, hunting and pecking looks like you're seeking it. Like, I've memorized the keyboard. Right. But what I mean to say is I don't type properly. Like, in typing class, they would say, like, your pinky hits the P or whatever. Right. And I was just like— I got you. My pinky pinky isn't that— you know, my pinky is a bad fingy. It doesn't do what I tell it to <laughs> right. all the time. My pinky is my worst guitar finger, so it's like... Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's just I don't have a lot of uh, dexterity with my pinky. Okay. Uh, I don't know if that's it's a, a lame duck. personal issue or what. I never really thought of it. I never trained my pinky to do much. I've never really given that much thought to how I type either, but I started out as a hunter pecker, and then mm-hmm. and now I'm a full typist, but it, I'm totally self-taught. Never, never had a lesson. But like, do you type properly people. according to like the classroom instruction? I don't know. Let me see. Oh, here we go. No, <laughs> I think I start. I think. Do you use your pinky? Kind of. I don't. I don't know where I start. I've, I've got to pay attention to this. I, I've never stopped and thought about where I put it. But I think I generally start in the home on the home. Yeah, in the home position. I think I do. That feels natural. Okay. So. Um, but yeah, it is kind of neat to be able to boast to to be like a self-taught typist because people out there did learn sure. in, in class. I was talking to Yumi about it, and she's like, "Are you guys going to talk about the computer games that taught you typing?" <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> did not play those? <laughs> so um, there's mean, one I looked up that was really popular called Type Master, uh-huh. where you would you were a UFO and there was like space invaders coming at you, and each one had a word associated with it. So you'd type the word really fast before that alien got to That's you, and it very blow it stressful. up. For me to think it about. is, yeah, yeah, it would make typing stressful. For I was sure. a dumb little boy. I was like, "Where's the laser?" Right, right. So th- they started typing. I think all the way back in the 1870s, they started teaching people typing. I think the YWCA of New York was one of the first groups to teach typing, and it just kept going on from there because this is not typewriters were not an intuitive machine. Like, they, they didn't really, they weren't laid out alphabetically. We don't just normally use our fingers for such endeavors. Like, it's something you had to learn, but they were able to teach enough people and get across the importance of it to enough people that typewriters, like, weren't just a passing fad like a lot of people initially thought they were. That's right. Very cool. And it, as we'll see after the break, it changed the workforce. Um, but before we break real quick, we do want to point out there are a lot of other keyboards in the world. There are language-specific keyboards. Uh, French keyboards say Azerty in that home, uh, top row. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Germans say, instead of QWERTY, uh, Quertz with a Z. Right. And uh, there are Braille keyboards. There are uh, there are cool uh, Japanese typewriters. Man, those are complicated. Yeah, no kidding. Have you ever typed on one? No, I, I can't I can't figure it out. Like I I read descriptions on how to use them. I'm like I don't understand this at all because yeah. they're in kanji the Japanese characters. There's thousands of characters. Yeah, pretty amazing. Have you ever used one? Oh no no no. Okay yeah. 
They look no. pretty neat. Uh, should we take that break? Yeah, let's. All right, we'll take that break and we'll talk about how typing changed everything right after this. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Hey everybody, if you're building a deck at work and you want to supercharge it, check out Canva presentations. Work docs have been the same for too long, but Canva docs are different. They're visual. They grab readers' attention with images, charts, tables, and videos playable right in the doc. Plus, docs don't have to be just words on a page. You can make your docs pop with Canva docs. That's right. And Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, HR, ops, marketing, and more, Canva presentations can be the solution for you. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Canva presentations might be the most visually impressive presentations you'll ever use. Start with a stunning template, use it as a springboard for your design, adding images, graphics, charts, data visualizations, all from a massive media library. It's super easy to wow any audience with Canva presentations. So start designing today at canva.com, designed for work. That's C-A-N-V-A.com. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. That's right. It's even in the name. Use code STUFF20 at checkout to receive $20 off your first month. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Yep. Again, use promo code STUFF20 and you'll receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Save on wireless with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. And you don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Hey, everybody. Did you know that Boricua is the name for someone from Puerto Rico? But it's more than just a name. It's a way of life and representation of the vibrant spirit of the island. Yeah, that's right. It's an island that's filled with adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the entire United States. That's right. Or you can get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico that remind you of why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island. It becomes a part of you. That's right. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Okay, so um, the Remington number two that I think you mentioned was Mark Twain's second typewriter. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first one to like really blow up. It, it came out in 1878, and it was like the typewriter for a very long time, for at least a decade. Um, but one of the things about the Remington number two and all the other typewriters at the time was you couldn't see what you were typing while you were typing because the type bars were striking the paper from underneath. So you couldn't watch yourself type at all. You just had to hope for the best. That's right. Uh, they were called up, upstrike or understrike or blind typewriters. 
and you had to lift that carriage up that was on a hinge to see what you had done, to see if you had made a mistake or not, or whether Mm -hmm. or not that's what you wanted to say. And uh, along comes the Underwood. I wanted an Underwood. I got a Royal. That's fine. My mom did a great job, but I kind (laughs) of wanted an Underwood because that's the classic old mechanical typewriter in my mind. Yeah, they're cool looking. Uh, That was the first front stroke visible typewriter Mm -hmm. to hit the market invented by Franz Xavier uh, Wagner or Wagner. I'm not sure. And John T. Underwood, you're just like, why is it called the Underwood? He was an office supply magnate, and he bought that patent. Said, I'm going to call it the Underwood, as if I invented it. Right. And it was uh, that was that was kind of it. That was a big change, uh, game changer, and everything moving forward was front facing. Yeah, it set the design standards until the IBM Selectric came out in 1961. Basically, you know, 70 or 65 years later, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Underwood was different because you could see what you were typing. The the type bar struck the platen in front of you rather than from underneath. There was one shift key. The keyboard was in four rows. The numbers and the symbols were at the very top row. Basically, everything you kind of think about as a keyboard today was that Underwood that came out way back in 1890. That's right. Yeah. Uh, We talked about the workforce changing. And this is one of those things where uh, we'll just tell it how it happened. Uh, It was a time when uh, women did not work in the office world. Uh, They weren't part of that workforce. Mm -hmm. And from the very beginning, the typewriter, uh, there was a book in the the 1888 called uh, Manual of the Typewriter where uh, its writer, author John Harrison, talks about it being especially, like, fit for feminine fingers. Mm -hmm. It's like they seem to be made for women. Uh, You know, there's not a lot of hard labor involved, and a lot of women play piano, and it's a similar skill as that. Right. And in 1870... uh, this is a, a stat that's really revealing. 2.5 of the clerical workforce were women in 1870. And in 1930, thanks to the typewriter, uh, that rose to 52.5%. Man. And plus also the clerical workforce itself grew because of the typewriter. Because before that, you had like Bartleby the Scrivener types where right. they were copying <laughs> yeah. by hand, like uh-huh. legal documents and stuff like that. There just wasn't as much paperwork because it was so so much more time-consuming and difficult. But Scholes, the typewriter hero of the century, um, or millennia, really, if you think about it, mm-hmm. um, he was very proud of his um, his uh, uh, invention because he saw that it allowed, it was an entrance for women into the workplace. They came out of the home, and it's, it's, not, it's incorrect to say that the typewriter is what got women in the workplace. Actually, it was the Civil War and the federal government hiring women for clerical positions, but it gave women a completely different type of um, life and salary and um, much more, I don't want to say equal footing, but it got a foot in the door into the office world um, thanks to the typewriter because people, I saw it described as secretarial work was associated with typewriters and women were associated with secretaries and it just took off from there. Right. Uh, And again, we're not saying that, you know, and before you know it, there were CEOs. Like there is still uh, so much work to be done on that front, but just getting inside the room is a big, big deal. And that got more and more women inside the room. Uh, They were kept apart for a little while, uh, late 19th (laughs) and early 20th century. They didn't think men and women could work in the same rooms as one another. Uh, So they had what was called typing pools, which was literally where all these women typed, these these huge rooms with like, you know, 100 typewriters that you've seen in movies. Mm -hmm. And these women just typing away, that was the typing pool. And then they would integrate the offices in that way uh, before too long. Right. And also the whole idea of like, well, women's places in the home, why are we trying to get them into the workplace? This is wrong. Like that's the process of modernization unfolding that like we talked about in the fundamentalism episode. Like that is a perfect example of modernization happening. Um, Again, though, it's it's like you said, it was it was something, but it definitely wasn't everything. And it it wasn't like throwing a switch because you had to be um, single, typically young and um, well-educated to be a typist uh, in the business world, especially early on. Um, And when you were married, then your role was definitely back in the home. So you would get married. Oftentimes you would meet somebody at work and marry them. And uh, they'd be like, okay, congratulations, you're fired. And that was that. 
you know, and then you went off to become a homemaker. So, yeah, there's still a lot of work to do, but there was a lot of work that had been done from, you know, the 20s and the 30s up to today. That's right. Uh, We need to skip forward in time a little bit because we've been talking about manual typewriters this whole time. Right. And, you know, we said the word game changer a lot. The real game changer, because there were, you know, electric typewriters starting in like the 1920s where things were uh, motorized. But it wasn't until the 1960s with the introduction, you mentioned it earlier, of that uh, IBM Selectric typewriter. Right. And the uh, the type ball, that was what really changed everything. If you look at an old uh, electric typewriter, I mean, th- this is what we learned on in high school. Like that was the, the sort of the go-to before the word processor. Mm-hmm. And Dave described it, and it's pretty appropriate. It's about the size of a golf ball, uh, but it's embossed with all the letters all the way around it. And there is this, you need to check out this video mm-hmm. on YouTube of how the Selectric actually works. It's an amazing marvel of engineering. There are actual cables that spin super, super fast, I think seven-tenths of a second, to get the right uh, character into place mm-hmm. to meet with that ribbon. Or I guess it wasn't even a ribbon at that point, was it? Or was it just automated? Uh, no, I think the ribbon does come up still, but it's the the ball, um, the the spin and the tilt. Yeah. It's just got really impressive yaw control. Yeah, and you didn't have to wind the ribbon anymore. I think that was the deal. It was just all uh, electrified. Right, okay. And that video you referenced, um, you can look up Engineer Guy on YouTube and IBM Selectric, and he does a really great job of explaining it um, and how it uses a a series of levers called a whiffle tree. But basically, your your mechanical input from your, your finger triggered a series of motors that would make this thing happen again in like seven tenths of a second. It's, it so was cool. really impressive. It's still impressive to see. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that changed everything because before when you were typing on a manual typer, you had to press really hard. And if that's all you were doing for eight hours a day, your hands started to hurt probably by midday Tuesday, I'm yeah. guessing. Um, this was totally different. You just kind of barely press the button and all of a sudden the thing would just respond fully to your to that to that. Uh, button press. So that really helped. It also made everybody a lot faster. And there were some other like cool components that were added later. Like I think this electric was the first one to use basically um, disk drives. I think onboard disk drives to store, you know, a whopping, you know, 30 words at a time or something (laughs) like that. Um, But that was huge because it it meant you could type a letter once and then you could recall the letter and print it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could edit it. You could do all sorts of neat things. So that made the Selectric also the first word processor. Right. And these are electric. Uh, there's a difference. There are also electronic typewriters mm-hmm. uh, that came along. And that was sort of the next evolution in the game. And they use circuit boards, uh, silicone chips, and everything to control those motors and memories. Right. Because uh, the electric was, um, while powered by electricity, was still a very sort of mechanical machine in the in the insides, right. in the guts. Uh, and the electronic typewriters came around in 1978. And I guess that's what I was using in high school, actually. But they were still Electronic? Those, yeah, yeah, but they were still IBMs. I don't know. I could see public schools still having the old typewriters by the time you were in school. I don't think so. From the 60s? Well, maybe. Yeah, because, I yeah, mean, if the electronic old. typewriters arrived in 78, you know that IBM was still making Selectrics then. Yeah, that's true. So it's possible you were using a Selectric. I mean, was there like a little LCD screen on your on your typewriter? No. Well, then my friend, that was an IBM Selectric <laughs> brand. Oh, did all the electronics have those? I think most of them did. I think it was a pretty quickly introduced thing that you had the little LCD printout so you could see what you had just typed before the the typewriter actually typed it up onto the paper. So I think you could edit it and rearrange it and do all sorts of stuff, which is the definition of word processing. Yeah, that's, that's what that means. That's what I ended up getting in college. Uh, right. And I think mine might have been a brother, but they looked, you know, Dave makes a good point. They look better than printing something out from your computer at the time because dot yeah. matrix uh, printers uh, stunk. And this looked way better. This looked like you typed it out by hand. Uh, well, because you did. Um, in 1984, I think uh, the Xerox memory writer 630 <laughs> right. was uh, a big game changer. And it had 20 lines of display, mm-hmm. which was a lot. Um, but it also cost, in today's dollars, uh, more than 10 grand. 
Yeah, it was like a, a major piece of office equipment in 1984. Yeah, mine. There's I didn't have any money back then. I, I bought something used, and it was not this. There's no way. Yeah, or maybe I mean, they I, just got a lot cheaper. Obviously, over that six years. I remember having one at home, and it must have been 88, 89, something like that. So, yeah, yeah I think it came down in price really quickly because my parents weren't shelling out ten grand for a word processor, Heck I can tell you no. that. No way. No. So um, Dave dug up this New York Times article from 1984 that was really prescient. It was yeah. cool. It was a really wonky article about the state of the typewriter and word processor market. But there's parts of it where they were saying, like, analysts say that by the end of the 80s, you won't be able to distinguish a typewriter from a word processor from a personal computer, which are these newfangled things coming online. And that the secretaries of the future will sit down at one machine that will be able to do all these functions, and what they're doing will just depend on what software they choose to be working on. Yeah. And in 1984, they're like, hey, here's the PC of the future. They nailed it. I love it. They actually put it in quotes. A secretary of the future will sit at the keyboard of a piece of, quote, hardware <laughs> with this function to be determined by the choice of software, analysts say. Yep. And That's pretty analysts, great. They had it for sure. You got anything else about the typewriter? I got nothing else. I got nothing else about the typewriter either, which means everybody, if you want to know about typewriters, go look them up. And you can buy them for a lot of money depending on the the, the type. Yeah. <laughs> Get it? Mm -hmm. uh, that was an unintentional pun as always. Uh, and since I said unintentional pun, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this, we're going to come up with this guy's personalized plate. Hey guys, love the recent episode on license plates at the beginning of the ep. Uh, one of you mentioned that you thought the topic was kind of boring, but I really loved it. I also mm -hmm. love license plates. I'm particularly fond of personalized license plates and recently tried to get one for myself for the first time. Uh, despite the talk of First Amendment rights, there are some rules in my state about what you can and can't have. Uh, for instance, nothing vulgar, of course, uh, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, the plate I applied for spelled out Farton, F-A-R-T-N. I know it's childish. But I think that it's funny and the right amount of vulgar. <laughs> He's got that right. Uh, however, the state of Utah disagreed, no surprise there, uh, and thought it was too vulgar because I was denied. Uh, now that my first choice has been uh, denied, I need some ideas. So uh, help me out. This is Matt. So I thought on the fly maybe we could think of something that's just the right amount of vulgar. What about tootin'? Tootin's pretty good. Or... Um... I mean, is it, is it all gas-centered? Well, I mean, this guy Fart clearly centric. likes that kind of thing. All right, let's go a different direction. So Tootin is our, our, our replacement for Fartin. How about that? Okay, Tootin's a replacement for Fartin. What about Cruzin, uh, C-R-U-Z-N? That'd be pretty boss. Yeah, not vulgar. No. How about... I don't know if I can say this. You got to. On no? our family-friendly show. How about B-A-L-Z-O-U-T? <laughs> right. Yeah? Sure. That might be the right amount of vulgar. Uh, but that's also, that's not a good look these days either. I don't know. It's I'm like not those quite guys sure. have testicles hanging from their truck. Do they still do that? Oh, sure. Drive yeah. out in the country in Georgia. Man. Testicles all over the place. <laughs> um, what about to the metal, but MDL? We just need to figure out how to shorten the... As, it, as in he has the pedal to the metal? Oh, oh. Well, you could do the number two. Or MTL, not MDL. L number two, T-H-E-M-T-L, oh, yeah. to the metal. I, that's the most um, amazing way. Well, no, that's what I was saying. We, we've got two shortened. We need to shorten the, to the metal. Like the, how do you shorten T-H-E? Well, in speed writing, you would make a downstroke like an L and then a line to the right. <laughs> Can you get that on a license plate? <laughs> I don't think so. How about two da d a m t l? Uh. <laughs> I think we've landed on it. That's pretty good. Oh, and also real quick, I lost the email. I don't know how we missed this, but somebody sent in an email saying, "Just go check out the license plate for the Northern Territories, Canada. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is a metal plate that is bear shaped." Yeah, it's really neat looking. It, I want to get one for the camp wall. I, I'm trying to buy one on eBay as we speak. Not like oh, right this second, but giddy up, man! I've been I've been looking around. Uh, who was that letter from? I don't know. Well, this was Matt, but I don't know who sent in the uh, the Northern Territories one. But Matt's the guy that we just helped out. 
Yeah, he's to the metal. Okay. Ho- hopefully we did help somewhere in there, Matt. Uh-huh. And by the way, every time I hear Utah now, I can't help but think of um, NBC Peacock's A Friend of the Family weirdo miniseries that my niece Mila is on. Fantastic. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Matt did and ask us to help you out, we'll do what we can. Uh, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Hey, everybody, if you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Childproofing people's homes is hard. But Duracell is making it just a bit simpler. Not only are they committed to educating parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of battery safety, they make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Duracell even features child-secure packaging designed to avoid accidental opening. Learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. 